You're listening to the Curious About Cannabis podcast. The Curious About Cannabis podcast is brought to you by the generous support of fans just like you. Find out how you can support the show and get access to exclusive content, merchandise discounts, and more at patreon.com slash curiousaboutcannabis. If you want to learn even more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book at cacpodcast.com slash book, or check out our Curious About Cannabis online courses and educational events at the Natural Learning Academy at learn.naturaledu.com. Hello, my name is Dr. Marcus Roggen. I'm a chemist and I'm currently the chief science officer of Delic Labs. Everybody, this is Jason Wilson with the Curious About Cannabis podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in once again. So today, I am really, really delighted to finally be connecting with uh, someone who I've been following the work for quite a while. We've just never bumped into each other, uh, but finally, we've connected. I'm here with Dr. Marcus Rogan with Delic Labs. Uh, Dr. Rogan, thanks so much for being willing to come on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. I, I've been, you know, like I mentioned just now, I've been following your company previously, um, Complex Biotech Discovery Ventures, and now it's been acquired, and now you're Delic Labs. I've been following work that you've been doing for at least the past year and a half or two or so, uh, three years maybe, and um, been really excited because it seems like um, you're taking a very interesting approach. I mean, one thing that I get excited about is as um, an analytical scientist myself, I've seen that some of your work has focused on trying to help people understand qualities around cannabis products and extracts and things that they may not be able to discover through a typical commercial cannabis lab. There are all sorts of things that you guys were um, applying technologies for, trying to test for um, early on that I, uh, in the commercial testing space, I was just wishing we had budgets and uh, and the time and energy to be able to do some, some of the more interesting testing that you guys were doing. Um, so really excited for this discussion and to see where it goes. And to, to kick things off, do you mind uh, describing a little bit about um, how you got into the space and the work you're doing and um, how your work has evolved? Because I think what we're going to talk about today is maybe a little different than maybe what a lot of people are kind of familiar with, you know, from the past with CBDV and all of that. Sure, sure. Happy to. Um, so I have a weird path into the cannabis industry. And uh, when you said you were following my work for the last three years, so that means even before I as Complex Biotech Discovery Ventures or CBDV, I was still in at Outcore, uh, the cannabis yeah. producer in San Diego. So I have like, a few stages. Okay, so I'm German. Uh, I have a PhD in organic chemistry. Uh, I did my undergrad at Imperial College London in the UK, which is the uh, voted the universe, uh, the least, um, no, uh, it's the, it's voted by the students as the university in the UK where it's the hardest to get hold of any drugs. Oh, interesting. Um, so <laughs> no contact with cannabis there. Uh, then I went to Switzerland for my PhD at ETH uh, Zurich. 
So again, not really the cannabis capital of the world. Um, they actually legalized hemp with up to 1% THC by weight uh, in late 2012. In late 2012, I left Switzerland. So I like I totally missed that part too. Um, then I moved to Can uh, to California to do a postdoc at Scripps Research Institute uh, in San Diego. Um, about the year they legalized cannabis recreationally in Colorado. So again, wrong place. Um, uh, but it it was that I, when I was in California um, that I as a European chemist, got my eyes open to the potential of, of scientific startups, uh, chemistry startups, life sciences, the new thing, cannabis. Um, and it was then serendipitously that I, through sport connections, um, not, not scientific connection, but sport connections, um, I got the opportunity to, to be the laboratory director of our testing lab in California. Um, there was a group that wanted to set up a testing lab uh, for cannabis. And I was like, hell no. Um, but then I realized that the licensing is actually in place and it's possible to do and, and so on. Um, yeah, so I started that and like set up a lab from scratch and started doing like this sample prep and uh, method development uh, in 2014. So like really, really early. Um, but we already at that time we realized we needed the right instruments to do the work and so if you want to test for pesticides you need a triple quad yeah uh, so you can't do it with a single quad um but there's a dirty secret that you actually um a tough is cheaper than a triple quad <laughs> when you flight, get the yeah. right thing and so if you have a time of flight your your um detection limits are not as low as a triple quad, but the stuff you see is so much broader. Yeah. Um, and in 2014, there weren't any limits on no, pesticides, no one. right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. And there were no guidelines on pesticides. So it, it made sense to actually think about getting a TOF. Um, so we got an LC TOF and a triple, MS triple, uh, GC triple quad mm. so that we had the detection limits on the GC, and then on the LC, we could also see some stuff, but but had the ability to see more. And and at the time, I was like, okay, um, I have no background in cannabis. Uh, at the time, I didn't even know how it smelled. Like I, my wife had to point it out to me, or girlfriend at the time, now wife, to point it out to me on the streets of Berlin that that is the smell of cannabis. And I was like, ah, okay, uh, <laughs> no idea. That's anyway, so you, okay. you start reading. You start reading and, and you realize, okay, there are a few cannabinoids. Um, I think at the time we were just under 100 or so. Uh, Probably so. I think that's something. when they were publishing like 75 or 80 or something. Yeah. And I was like, so how many reference standards can I buy? Five. I was like, what the <laughs> hell? Um, and, and so I started doing method development. And with the TOF, you can do some cool stuff. And anyway, so I'm... Um, one of the earliest um, cannabis samples I got, even during method development, I sent it through the TOF and I just left it run. So in a triple quad, you would go and say, okay, this is my, my, uh, my mass that I want to select for. Then I um, 
break it down further to get my, so you get your 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 identifier and your quantifier, right? Yeah. And in a TOF, you do it slightly different, right? You 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 run effectively open. Um, you look for all the masses, uh, and afterwards in the in the software, you go and narrow it down and look for your identifier and quantifier. And and I look for my identifier and quantifier for the mass weight of THC acid. Mm-hmm. And so then you also get CBD acid, right? Uh, right, same weight. I know where THC acid and CBD acid is, and then I see a peak that has about this nearly as uh, much surface area as as the THC acid peak, but it's off. It's not THC acid, and and it's it's not close enough to like be delta A THC acid. Mm-hmm. Not that I know that anyone found it yet, but but like um, the the separation on the column was more than I would have expected. Yes, yeah. And so it's like, huh, there's what more in there. Anyway, yeah. but but at the time, being in a testing lab and just quite quickly coming back to actually telling my, telling my story, how I got into this, I was like, this is weird. This is interesting. Don't have time for it, right? Or this is not the goal of this company. And mm-hmm. that's actually an important point. This is not the goal of the company I'm currently working with that I'm looking for the stuff that is not, unknown, uh, that is not known and that, that, that isn't within their business plan. So I did that for two years, and then uh, licensing came back to bite me because the current. So by that time, um, there was a new regulation or governing system for medical marijuana, mm-hmm. and uh, counties start and municipalities started to opt out. Yeah. And I was in San Luis Obispo, and there's like hell no, and so they got out of it. Yeah. So we lost our business license. And I was like, I'm not sitting around for this. Uh, and I, at the time I was actually, um, at a conference, uh, at a, at a meeting greet or so I was, I was, I was explaining to business people what extraction means. And one of the business per- people turned around and was like, we need you. And three weeks later I had a job down in San Diego. So I moved back down to San Diego, worked for Outcore, set up their extraction operation. Um, Right. If you remember, I'm an organic chemist by training. I started an analytical lab, and now I do extractions. Like this is uh, not my not my <laughs> background. Diving into the deep end everywhere. Yeah, but I'm I I, I actually already my business uh, my bachelor thesis was about uh, design of experiments, so chemometrics to optimize reactions. But you can also use the same system to optimize extraction. So it's fine. Okay. So I, I I set up their CO2 extraction because licensing local yep. municipality said. No butane, no alcohol, you can do CO2. So that's why I'm now an expert in CO2 extraction. (laughs) And we got the CO2 extractor, and I'm trying to look at the literature, what what are the good conditions, how to do it? And I'm like, can't really find anything. And like, Mm -hmm. there was this paper by the Dutch group uh, Perrin, Perrin, uh, Brunel, Um, my names are pretty bad, sorry. they measured the solubility of cannabinoids in CO2. Mm. And it's a really interesting paper, two papers. One is for THC and one is for the other cannabinoids. Um, it's really important and interesting, but it is not real life applicable because yeah. it is pure substances in static uh, CO2. So all the, so this is the thermodynamics of individual compounds, mm. but 
when you do extractions, you also have to think about the kinetics or how fast something dissolves in your solvent and how other things that dissolve in your CO2 actually become the solvent and therefore change the system to dissolve your, your compound of interest. So for CO2 extractor in cannabis, everyone knows that water is the bane of existence because water yeah. dissolves in CO2, then you have a CO2 water mixture and that dissolves THC completely different. Yeah. Well, basically not at all. So uh, there was very little, very few literature uh, precedent to, to look at, um, but I have my background in design of experiment and chemometrics, and it's like, hell, let's try this. So we Figure ran it. We ran a design of experiment. And um, so I started at Outco in late 2016. We got an extractor. I had it set up in like December. It, I switched it on. So in January, I did the design of experiment. In February, I was at Emerald Scientific Conference in uh, San Diego and I presented the DOE. So like, that's a, that's a nice quick turnaround on, on, on some scientific work here. And I'm like, So far, there were loads of extraction artists on stage and, and at other conferences and talking about their uh, beauty of their process. And I was like, I don't know what to do, but I know how to optimize stuff. And so like, here's data and here's how you do it. And this is a Taylor expansion. And this is matrix algebra. And this is my code in Python or at, at the time Mathematica, um, how I computed wow. this. And I, I know when I was giving this talk at conferences that were more consumer focused, I had people actually leave. And I was like, mm. yes, <laughs> <laughs> I'm making cannabis boring again. Anyway, right, so, yeah. <laughs> so I presented that and then and I kept up plugging away and we extended this work, looked at, uh, we at the time only looked at supercritical space. So we looked at subcritical space and now I had data for subcritical and supercritical and everyone who said like, ooh, low pressure is kinder to the molecules. It's like, this is, this is, First principle scientific bullshit. And also I now have the data that it that no doesn't make any sense. Yeah. Um so I at that point optimizing and doing these experiments were within the business plan and the goals of, of outco of uh, setting up the operations and making products that are uh, more cost effective or superior to, to other cannabis markets. Um I remember when I started uh, at Outcore, California was like clear as king. So vape oils had to be clear. Mm. It had to be distilled. There had to yep. be no color in it. Um, and if you think about where the cannabis industry comes from, it, it kind of makes sense. Like if you can visually see that there are no bits and pieces in it, mm. then it's probably good and quality, better in quality than the things with bits and pieces. But at some point it switches around. Like who can see molecules? Right. Yep. Uh, and so if you're thinking about, okay, we are sure that there are no big bits and pieces in it. So now let's think about what compounds are in there and how these compounds actually affect the product. So with our work, being able to optimize the extraction so that we can target down on the compounds of interest, we will actually produce oils that were like slightly opaque. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and so there was actually then spurred off by the products we brought onto the market, there was this move from uh clear as king to uh how they call this uh full spectrum cartridges or right, whatever uh, that means 
here. Source cartridges. Like I did not participate in branding, so I left that to two other people <laughs> to come up with. Uh, and and there was there was a market change of people uh, and companies trying to bring now new products to the market that more mimic mimic the work that that we were doing. Mm -hmm. Uh, which I thought is is the the best way of flattery if they try to copy you. Yeah, um, exactly. I also heard that some companies actually bought our vape cartridges and then tried to test it and to re-engineer. And it's like you don't have to. I'm giving talks. I'm giving the data for you. Like you can <laughs> look at listen. my presentations. Um, <laughs> although my design of experiment was based on our machine. So if you had a different machine, your conditions were different. But I actually. <laughs> least explain to everyone how to do a design of experiment like i i even wrote uh articles like step-by-step -step guide of what you do to do the optimization so as long as i did this okay so i did this and i i got the production running we then uh then i looked at how do we um do drying and curing of cannabis like what should be the room conditions to affect the water content in the plant to suppress the growth of, of uh, fungi and bacteria. Uh, and, and then we looked at what does curing actually mean? Uh, right. uh, Chemically, what's changing? And what's yeah, so we, we started yeah. looked at this. Like there was this idea of burping that it can breathe. And so we actually stuck a CO2 sensor into the bucket. And yes, the levels change with the level of people in the room because the buckets are not sealed. So uh, burping doesn't really do anything. Uh, so we, we, we looked at a lot of stuff there. Then, then I started looking at um, uh, some product stability, our, our oils. Um, we looked at uh, how to make the perfect joint. We looked at how do different particle size affect the draw behavior and the smoke behavior. And that was all qualitative at the time, mm -hmm. right? Make joints of different particle size, give them to a bunch of colleagues, have them smoke it, tell you how it works. Right. So we brought this out and and I kept plugging away and had a lot of fun. But after a year, year and a half, I, I kind of was done with all the stuff that was within the capabilities or the business plan of mm -hmm. Outgo. Yeah. And and I realized that my design of experiment looked at the cannabinoids and terpenes, but I'm aware that flavonoids are in the in the plant. But I can't see it, and I can't see it uh, even with the testing lab because no one offers that a third-party testing lab. So now you're having this. Okay, I've seen compounds on my TOF that no uh, that weren't known at the time. Um, I know that I'm missing stuff on my process optimization, and so I realize that um, my interests and skills lie not so much with process control but with process development and method development. Yeah. And so the idea came up, I have to set up a, a research laboratory um, because my thought was that even the large cannabis companies at the time in Canada are still too small to build up their own uh, research headquarter. So if you go to Novartis or, or Pfizer, um, they have multiple research facilities. Yeah. And just the, the Novartis Research Facility in San Diego has more PhD chemists in that one building than all of cannabis industry has in North America. Yeah, yeah. And, and there's no way someone, uh, some cannabis company would buy an NMR. Like, yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. It's too expensive. I'm, not a desktop, but like a 600. 600 right, a room. Uh, yeah, a whole room dedicated to it. 
so the idea came up that we should set up a research center as a as a like a independent facility to service all cannabis companies um and partner with the university so that I have access to an NMR. So that scratches out every place in the US. Yep. Uh, and then thanks to academic incest, I knew people at uh, UBC in uh, Canada, Vancouver, Canada. So I talked to them and then we said, okay, let's do this. So I moved to Canada to set up Complex Biotech Discovery Ventures, CBDV for short. Um, yeah, this is this is the extent of my branding abilities. Uh, that's why, <laughs> why, I should be a chem- it, why I should be a chemist. For, for someone like me, that was like, oh, I will remember that like instantly. Um, maybe other people might find it a little complicated, but I, I love that kind of stuff, abbreviation of chemical names. Yeah, thank you. So we 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 then set up shop in Vancouver. Uh, the Canadian government allows us to get licensing for cannabis research. So I have a, a cannabis license, so I can actually buy material from cannabis producers um, on the kilo side, if I so mm-hmm. choose. Uh, and for the very expensive instrumentation, uh, I can use the university. So we have NMRs. I like have run many NMRs on canna- cannabinoids or cannabis. I have run a high-res MS, so not TOF, nice. QTOF, QTOF yeah. data. Way more fun. Um, crystal structures. We have done powder oh, crystal wow. on on uh, CBD powder to identify that and uh, distinguish that one product from a different product. Uh, we have done melting points, but in a calorimeter, so way better information and density. Uh, we have done electrochemistry on the oxidation potential of cannabinoids. Right. Yeah. Um, this is this is data that the cannabis industry does not currently have, but should ha- should have to like get to the next level. Um, I always make the joke that th- uh, the melting point of THC is not in the literature. So you get a scientific publication for just measuring that melting point. Yeah. And the, it's so confusing too, because a lot of the sort of classical research, published research on a lot of this stuff is a little hard to decipher. You know, there's some that like extends back to, um, you know, the forties and the sixties and seventies. And, um, sometimes there are, um, methodological issues or even just nomenclature issues. Like they sometimes describe these molecules in different ways. The names have changed over time. So even if you're a seasoned scientist and you're diving through the available literature, which really, I know, Sometimes people talk about how much cannabis research has been done, but when you start getting into niche things like this, there's really not much, and um, it can be super, super confusing. So you're you're right. This is all data that the industry desperately needs, whether they know they need it or not. And really, it's data that we should have been developing decades ago. Yes. So it allows us, or what really motivates me is that we have a field where you can make really fundamental groundbreaking discoveries. Yes. Um, while that is really difficult in weed science or um, like cereals right. um, or potatoes. Actually, yeah. potatoes, because of the multiple uh, chromosomes, a bit more complicated, like corn. Yeah. There isn't really much to discover nowadays. 
at least for chemists. And so this really motivates me and, and really inspires me and gives me a lot of, of joy in that work. And it was also this idea that, yes, I'm an organic chemist by training and now I'm playing analytical chemist and I, I play uh, chemical engineer or process chemist. I, like, I will reach my limits quite quickly if I really push on it. Like, I can, I can operate a TOF. But a QTOF gets complicated. I even can't wrap my head around um, iron mobility. Uh, yeah, I, I'm with you. Yeah. Um, I mentioned that because so we so we work with the with the analytical group at the university. They have a QTOF. We actually recently hired a very skilled uh, chemist uh, into our group. Uh, who now heads our analytic chemistry internally, and like our analytics have just like bumped up so quickly. Like nice. his yeah. skills, uh, so Eric Jensen's, uh, Jenison, uh his skills like add a lot of abilities to our team. Mm. Um, and so we are hoping that by late summer, uh, we are actually getting a QTOF uh, online in our own lab, which will allow us to run more tests and run. Uh, different uh, methods, uh, which is particularly important to our now developing uh, uh, psychedelic mushroom research, which we will come back to later, um, and why it is important to have your own HPLC for that, and you can't rely on academic labs. The and and the QTOF we are putting online will be capable of being upgraded to iron mobility. So at some point we can really hit it and look at stuff because um, everyone who has run cannabis analytics knows how complicated it is to separate delta eight from delta nine THC. Uh, but with iron mobility, it's really easy. And so we will be able to look at some isomers, but also in the terpene side that uh, normally that, fall was... apart. I was going to say like that that becomes really really big with terpenes especially given the uh attention that terpenes have now right. um it, it's something I've been kind of warning people about is that a lot of the terpene data floating around in the industry it, you know I'm not going to say that it's it's all unreliable but it's all over the place and you it, the methods for testing terpenes are um, not great. At least a lot of the common ones that are applied. Well, um, and we all know that limonene has two different uh, flavors <laughs> depending on the enantiomer, and I haven't yet seen yeah. anyone running a chiral GC column. No, me neither. No. So and... even if you do 2D uh, GC, which is floating around a little, uh, enantiomers are also important, and they are also important for cannabinoids. We are. We know that uh, for THC, all four isomers, so the two diastereomers and then the respective uh, enantiomers of those, uh, are present in the cannabis plant. Mm -hmm. And and there's no test data on that. Uh, yeah. So we want to look into that in the future. So that's on the analytics side, but this is on the like high-powered analytics side, and that's an hour mm -hmm. lab, and that's really cool. But how does that help? a cannabis producer at their facility. Right. It doesn't, right? It doesn't. So my my now work background in the cannabis industry has been at a cannabis producer, Outco. And I therefore have this academic 
industry partnership thinking in my mind. And I'm, I have to realize how do we not only develop these cool chiral methods for unknown cannabinoids, but how do we build analytical methods that are actually benefiting a cannabis producer at their facility? And so the first work we started was decarboxylation. Um, because this is a process that every cannabis producer does, but no one really controls for it. Yeah. Um, they just think it's a, it's a ready-made baking method. Just take your cannabis flour or take your cannabis oil, put it in an oven, wait two hours at 135 degrees Celsius, and you're done. I mean, you are done. You waited long enough. Um, <laughs> it's definitely done. But that's where the organic chemist in me comes back. If you put heat and water, which is present in the flour, and time together, you get a lot of new things. Yes. Um, and, and so for a cannabis producer, they have to think about how do I get my THC I want? How do I not turn my THC into CBN? And how do I free my oven quick enough that I can have enough throughput and not waste so much electricity? Um, this all becomes important in a in a growing in a maturing industry where price pressures now exist. So our thought was, how do we test for decarboxylation? And it's easy on an HPLC. You look for THC and THC acid, and you know your decarboxylation ratio. But method prepar sample preparation and running the method takes you, even if you're super fast, over half an hour. Mm -hmm. And if we know that decarboxylation takes less than two hours in total, you are by definition 25% off yeah, by finding yeah, the endpoint. And so from that, I thought IR is not my method of choice for quantification, but it's mm -hmm. really, really good for um, uh, relationship ratios, yeah, for ratios, yeah. for THC versus THC acid. Um, and so I was like, okay. Let's try this. And now we have built multiple platforms. I worked initially with Perkin Alma for a, a THC, to, a THC acid to THC oil decarboxylation. And recently we have worked with Agilent to get a platform for CBD acid and THC acid decarboxylation in both oil and flour. So they are two distinct methods. Um, to control those aspects. So now you have a method where sample preparation and sample taking takes a minute or less, right? Take a drop, yeah. put it on the cell, press start, and 30 yeah. seconds later, you have an answer. And then in the Agilent system, we actually programmed it in that the test platform shows you a field that gives you a percentage of decarboxylation. Nice. So wow. it tells you it's 50% decarboxylated. It's, no conversions or any sort of extrapolations. Yeah. yeah. You just see that number because that's all the production floor needs to know, right? Yep. Is my oil decarboxylated? And so you can actually sit there and it's like, okay, so I know that after half an hour, I'm around 90 to 100% decarboxylated. So let's check, at nine, uh, let's check at 30 minutes and then you're only 95. So you wait two more minutes and it's 98. And so you wait another minute, it's 99, it's like, I'm good. So now you can actually in real time control your reaction. So now we have inline, in situ analytics. That's amazing. So yeah. this now helps the cannabis producer. And so we are now looking at other methods. Um, I hate it when people talk about color. 
as mm. a qualitative aspect. I'm like, <laughs> color can be measured. I can give you the color by a wave number and I can give you the color by an intensity on a UV. So can we now use UV spectroscopy um, to, to qualify and quantify color um, for wanted color and non uh, undesirable color. So that's our next research project that should give a, a production floor instrument uh, method wow. set up. And, and then between our own like super extreme, cool, eventual iron mobility QTOF and the IR unit on the other end, we, we work with cannabis producers on analytical problems they have that they can't fully answer themselves uh, that, that we can help and we figure out the system and then, then translate it back to them and they, they uh, then implement it. And uh, our prime example, I'm currently writing on the publication, so right now we have to still stay a bit vague about it, is um, the color purple in CBD products. Mm -hmm. uh, you might have come across it. There are some yeah. people that claim if it's purple, it's higher quality. Uh, and other people say oh, purple is, uh, is not of a concern or purple is this. And, and most of them are wrong. Some of them are on the right track, but, but it's not there. So the question for us from cannabis, from, 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 a, from a client was, what's the purple color? Mm -hmm. How is it formed? How do I suppress it? So now we are combining. And, and <laughs> so the important part is the purple color is from a compound who is really, really colorful. Mm -hmm. So you see the purple before you see the compound. Um, nice. It's like down in the parts per million concentration. But the thing is strong purple. It's like a needle in a haystack. Yeah. And, and um, so there are, there's a paper by Meshulam about the beam test that is used to identify cannabis products, which basically just shows that CBD is in it, uh, right. which, which oxidizes its under acid conditions. It oxidizes CBD to the hydro, hydroxyquinone, uh, HV331. Um, and the anion of HV331 gives you a color purple. Well, and I was uh, going to ask about quinoids because I know that quinoids are responsible for some of the reds in cannabis extracts as well. Yes. So that is part of the answer. And that's what you hear often. But um, that's not the full answer because no one dumps a lot. Of, oh, sorry. Um, the beam test is done under basic conditions. Sorry, I was wrong. Uh, you oh. use a strong base, not acid, strong base. Uh, no one dumps a strong base into their CBD products. Right. But it's still purple. Mm -hmm. So it's under neutral conditions. Right, yeah. Right? So it gets, a bit, it gets a bit more complicated. Also, if an iron is your color, why would the iron stick around in neutral conditions? Right. It wouldn't. So... Uh, yeah, so we, we came up with an elaborate reaction pathway um, that we then could so, uh, support by NMR data, uh, mass spec data, 
we have um, electrochemical data, and we also have computational chemistry uh, to support the color. So we're writing up this paper, and maybe by the time this is out, we actually have it published. Uh, by the time this podcast is out, we have published it. But um, So that's a cool story. Um, but it then lets me think about this question of we are interested what's in the cannabis plants and how to get that into our cannabis product, right? That was uh, our analytics, our in-situ analytics, our extraction optimization. Um, we might even talk about more extraction later. But now we are starting thinking about what compounds are formed during the cannabis right. production that we don't think about, that yes. are beyond, right? We're not turning THC acid to THC, but we are turning THC to CBN, which is an unwanted, mostly, sometimes not, compound. What other compounds are we making? Delta-8 unknown. Delta-10 has just recently been uh, described. But are there other compounds? So we, we then... Uh, started looking further and thought about there's not only the production but there's also the consumption aspect. So we have a smoke uh, we have a smoke machine to basically inhale joints and and vape cartridges. So now we can look at what toxic compounds are coming off and there's really good work that inspired us by uh, Professor Strongen's group at University of Portland in Oregon uh, by Jiris. Uh, his his PhD student who did amazing work on the deco uh, decomposition of cannabinoids and terpenes uh, in a vaping setup, but they were not able to smoke real joints. They right. could only do uh, reference standards, like pure compounds. I used the government website of the Can British Columbia uh, cannabis <laughs> shop ordered online, paid with my credit card, and the Can Canada Post delivered cannabis vape cartridges to my laboratory. <laughs> like, for a U.S. citizen, that must, like, blow their mind. Right, uh, I know. And I still find it weird that, like, the Canada Post, Post shipped me uh, cannabis. Anyway, so we used that, and we looked at uh, toxic toxicants. Uh, Jiris actually helped us on this. Um, but we then also started looking at how much THC do you actually inhale per puff? Mm, and how mm -hmm. does that compare in a vape cartridge versus a joint? And how does that uh, change between different vape cartridges? Is the, the concentration of the vape oil of effect to the THC you actually inhale? Um, so we have like a host of data. Um, and I actually recently talked about this and presented our results at the uh, ACS Can Society oh, cool. Journal yeah. Club. Uh, so that should be up uh, and viewable. So then you can actually see it with pictures and graphs. Um, in short, the, the milligrams of THC inhaled per puff on a joint versus a vape cartridge are actually very similar. Hmm, interesting. Okay. It's a, so if you average it out, it's about a milligram of THC per puff at the beginning of a joint and a vape cartridge. And how does that change as it progresses? So in a vape card, if we, we looked at seven different vape cards, on average, the concentration goes down, which I don't understand yet. Mm -hmm. And for joint, the concentration goes up. That, yeah, interesting. Which I expected... Mm -hmm. I have an idea why it is the case. Uh, I want to prove it out, and we actually want to do further experiments to show. So my my assumption is that, so we know that THC boils 
at 155 degrees Celsius, and that's where everyone stops on the internet, add reduced pressure. That's oh, yeah, the original that's the part, right? That's the important yeah. part here. So it doesn't boil at 150 degrees Celsius. It boils at 425 degrees Celsius if you knew, use a normal graph at, at room, for room temperature. You're not getting to 425 degrees Celsius. Uh, you probably decompose kind of uh, THC first. Yeah. So THC is in an aerosol. It's like oil droplets you inhale. Mm. Uh, these oil droplets can also deposit in the path of the joint, right? It can just... Absolutely. And you can see it happen. Yes. Right? You have these, these oily mouthpiece eventually. So I think that THC it goes into the aerosol. Some of it ends up in your lungs. That's the milligram of THC you inhale for the first puff. But a, some of it will actually deposit on the cannabis flower on the path towards your mouth. So the, the effective THC concentration of a slice of joint mm -hmm. will actually increase in potency towards <laughs> the mouthpiece while you smoke it. Yeah. And so I want to show that by basically like taking cuts of joints throughout the smoke process and show that the concentration goes up. Okay. So therefore, you might smoke, uh, let's say, 20% THC cannabis mm -hmm. flower. But by the time the, the fire part of your joint gets to the mouthpiece, so the last, uh, last let's say, a few millimeters of joint you smoke actually contains flower that might be 25%. 30% right. THC. Um, and that's why, the, uh, that's why I assume the THC goes up. But again, I want to prove I... this up. This is, a, this is the nice thing about a scientific process, right? You, you, exactly. you come up yep. with an assumption and then you come up with ideas how to test it, prove it or disprove it. You should do both, right? You should always look at what uh, experiments mm -hmm. support my idea and then come up yep. with uh, experiments that are there to destroy your idea. So you want yeah. to have negative results. If you only have positive, positive results, you have this uh, confirmation bias. You need experiments that disprove what you are, or try to disprove what you are assuming. Right, yeah. And, and that's something I've, I've really appreciated about your approach is like, whatever the problem is, the question is, let's figure out the path to get towards that answer. And, you know, and, and what those proper steps are, which is really exciting. And, and I think people listening, what you're describing, you know, about the, the potency changes, you know, it, this is going to be a bit revealing about myself, but I remember back when I was an undergraduate in college and, you know, was in my early days of experimenting with cannabis. And this was in a prohibitionist state, you know, where it was not regularly available and everything. There was a thing that you would do when you ran out of cannabis, which is you collect your roaches and you collect, you know, uh, all of your spent material, basically, and you break it back down and you turn it into one joint made out of all of your uh, sort of leftover bits from the roaches. And, you know, that is something that you and your friends then pass around and are able to get like one last squeeze out of everything you have. And that roach joint tends to be really, really, really strong. Uh, compared to, you know, what you might be used to. So there's like this, the, the 19, 20 year old me um, that's hearing this conversation that kind of thinks back and is like, okay, now you're providing some scientific evidence for things that, you know, we were playing around with back in the day. 
uh, when you know I was just discovering what cannabis was. So that's that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah, and and so there you're actually pointing to something that uh, is quite important for our approach to can uh, to our research that we might be really good scientists in our field of study, but I have no idea about cannabis. So yeah. for me, it was always important to partner with, with cannabis connoisseurs or insiders mm -hmm. because I know how to optimize a machine, but I don't yeah. know how to what to optimize it for. Like, what do you right, even right. want to get out of an oil? So back at Outco, um, I had very good uh, co-workers, uh, Taylor Tra and uh, Blake Grauerholz. So if you run across them, say hi. Uh, yeah. They are great uh, now scientists and, uh, and cannabis production experts. Uh, but they also have the cultural background in it. So mm -hmm. they, they really needed to help me to understand when I look at the data, what I actually want to optimize it for. It's like, okay, I can separate terpenes from cannabinoids. Is that of interest? And they're like, yay, we can yeah, get pure terpenes. They're like, yeah, that is awesome. And don't throw this away. Um, I might have thrown this away because I, this is not my THC. So I'm just like, right, you, this. right yeah. So we actually it's kept the, this. So we have the like these jars of, of, of terpene fractions. So we put them in, so <laughs> you put them in bog, ball jars right mm -hmm. glass jars and so we have this like one we have like a five i think we have a five liter glass jar ball jar with um i think it was like tangerine lemon strain or something or mm -hmm. yeah some tangy strain uh just a terpene fraction so no cannabinoids just a terpene fraction and this thing is nearly full uh with terpenes so they called it the not the ball jar but the baller jar <laughs> yes <laughs> that's awesome and and so now we are separating cannabinoids from from terpenes you can then treat your cannabinoids a little hotter right. because you wanted to have the decarboxylation step in there uh then you re you remix it with your terpene fraction mm -hmm. so now you never cooked your terpenes but you did decarboxylate your thc acid yeah. uh to thc uh, you mix this together, so you get the nice uh, viscosity, which we have a viscometer to measure, uh, and and then we can fill it in vape cartridges. And we're producing a product that is quite interesting to clients because uh, or consumers because when you when you normally extract everything together, then have to heat the shit out of it to decarboxylate it and then distill it to somehow purify it, there are no terpenes left. Right. So all the flavor is gone. So we, we were able to separate this. So this was actually quite an early finding in our CO2 optimization work um, to separate the cannabinoids from terpenes. But I then also realized that when you think about extraction, there is the temperature and pressure of the extraction vessel. If you have an ad advanced instrument, you have multiple separators at multiple temperatures and pressures. Then you have your cannab uh, cannabis input material, which particle size is actually important. We did some research with Fritsch Milling um, German mill, so German pride here. Uh, right. So we were able to show that smaller particle size actually helps. I remember uh, one of my first co-workers asked me if I mill mid cannabis, wouldn't I destroy THC? And I think he thought that I would, with a cannabis mill, or with a mill, would actually cut THC molecules in, in pieces. 
and I was like, that's an awesome mill. That would be uh, a really cool mill to have. It I, is I a really cool triple quads. <laughs> yeah, it is a really cool mill to have. Um, anyway, so um, I I wasn't I wasn't too sad to have to leave the job uh, with that coworker uh, and move on uh, to another job. The so this and the cannabinoid uh, concentration of the input material actually has an effect on the extraction curve. Uh, the water content of the starting material has an effect. That's why many cannabis producers actually uh, oven dry their cannabis before it goes into the material. Actually, THC has a higher solubility than THC acid, so the neutrals have higher solubility. So you actually want to get rid of the water and decarboxylate before, and if you want to go really fast, but cook all the terpenes in that process. Then uh, you, we, we mentioned the uh, thermodynamics, so how much THC can dissolve in CO2 in a static setting. Uh, but flow rate has an influence on the kinetics, which gives you also an important aspect. So I'm, I'm counting on my fingers and I'm like way past one hand. Um, so we are actually looking at um, you know, by now approaching 100 different factors yeah. for cannabis extraction. And so now I'm beyond my abilities to do a design of experiment. So design of experiment, um, even with a Dürlat design or a star-centered, um, you pre-plan your experiments, you run them, and after you've done all the experiments, then you get your answer. Um, and the number of experiments grow exponentially with the number of factors you want to check out on. So yeah. that is cost prohibitive. If we're looking at 100 factors, that would be thousands of experiments. Yeah. Uh, so now with, uh, in my new research company, we take a new approach and think about it more from a machine learning and Bayesian optimization process, right? We work with cannabis producers. So I take in their data, we put in our database, now I have a mixture of different instruments, different cannabis material, different outcomes, different settings. Uh, we have thousands and thousands of extraction runs uh, and put them together. It's not really big data because big data in the financial industry is billions of data points. Yeah. Uh, we are not there yet. And um, they are all perfect. There are no missing rows. In our case, we are missing a lot of columns. Like yes. some people measure the weight before and after. Others only measure the weight before they put it into the extractor. Some people test every batch. Uh, some people only <laughs> test every fifth batch. Um, some people collect uh, the temperature on their separators. Others don't measure that. So we are we're having a large database with holes. So we're having a machine learning algorithm that actually like learns from it, fills holes, extrapolates, mm. builds systems. And so that's beyond me. So I have a very, very skilled uh, chief technology, uh, technology officer, Tom, uh, that has a background in computational chemistry uh, and, and data science. And uh, he, he uh, guides a team of statisticians, data scientists, computer engineers, uh, to have that aspect on our side. Mm -hmm. So we are, we are building that side too. And, and then connecting 
the question of analytics and computational uh, operations, we are and inspired by the question like what's in cannabis and how do you test for it, we actually yeah. build a database that's accessible through our website um, where we put all the known can, uh, compounds in cannabis in one database. And then we went through the literature and tried to find all the melting points, all the data, how nice. to do the GC analysis, the LC analysis, what does an NMR look like, uh, what's the density, uh, what's the molecular structure. Um, we are around 800 compounds in there. Um, and uh, when we do internal work, we put that data in there as well. So this is slowly getting us. So it's basically a NIST database specific mm -hmm. for cannabis. Because if you look for molecular weight 314 on the NIST database, you get a lot of hits. <laughs> but if you put that in our database, you get the compounds in cannabis of that weight, and then you get the method, the LC method, and give, get the, resi uh, the time on it. Wow. So when you then use your method, you can then look at, okay, that's THC, that's CBD. So that- right. You've got an idea have, of the retention you time. You have the re relative time. retention time, and so you can figure out what it is. We're actually thinking about the next step that we do like a, a spectra for a service that uh, you can upload your spectra and we populate the, uh, the nice. compound names automatically. So computation and analytics. And yep. so we are throwing everything together. So founding principle of the company is fundamental collaboration. And it is just the team that can do the work. So when you're saying you were following my work, you were following our work. Absolutely, absolutely, yeah. And it's so cool to hear about the... Uh how that team has evolved um, over time, all these pieces of the puzzle that have come together to produce this. That's fascinating. And I assume the database you're mentioning, that's also including compounds that you're looking at in smoke as well. Is that part of that? The kind of hundreds it, of unique things? Yeah, yeah. eventually we will add those too. Yes, right. We have identified some, but we don't have. An, so we are, we are constantly updating the database. So right now we're mm -hmm. working on the next design level and the next capability. So what you see is not yet what we already work on, yeah. uh, but it will slowly update. And uh, there's an easy access to that uh, through our website. Um, but this evolving research focus uh, mm -hmm. is actually maybe the perfect pivot to think about yeah, psychedelics. Segue. Yeah. So that came about for us that Health Canada gave us a research license for cannabis. And in 2020, it became apparent to us that Health Canada now has a, a licensing system for research on psilocybin mushrooms. And we thought, it's a botanical that produces uh, intoxicating or psychedelic compounds that is under strong legal restrictions and is a controlled substance. So it's basically the same that cannabis is. Right. Yeah. Right. Yep. And, and to do the research, you need to be able to work in an under-researched field. Right. There's not much literature in it check we can do that uh you need to be able to handle the materials so you need to have all the safety protocols in, in place check we have that like we have a safe bolted to the floor like which other chemistry yes, lab has yep, a safe yep. in their lab like when you walk into an academic oh. lab have you ever seen the security there right um 
I know. Well, I, I tell people even, uh, you know, I did my undergraduate at the University of Mississippi and, and spent time at the, the NIDA cannabis lab there, the federal cannabis lab and the security there under the DEA still there, there are the things that companies are doing in these, uh, here in the United States and the legalized states is still above and beyond what I even saw, you know, there in a DEA lab. Um, some of the the tracking, the traceability, and everything. I mean, it's yeah, it's intense. Yeah. So we were we were really well set up to do this research, and so we applied for a license. We received in 20, LA twenty twenty. We received a license to do psilocybin research. And our model is, as if you haven't figured it out by yet, we don't produce anything. Like I don't want to make anything and sell anything. Yeah. Uh, I just yeah, want to yep. generate the knowledge and then partner with uh, producers to put it in action. So the psychedelic industry is lagging behind the cannabis industry. There aren't as many canna- uh, psychedelic producers that there are uh, cannabis producers, but there are a few. So we already were lucky and had a few clients already uh, for which we do analytic method development. Um, our licensing right now is all about analytics. We are working on additional licensing to do extraction work. Gotcha. Uh, but extraction is in the Health Canada system considered production. And for that, you mm. need a different level or a different licensing uh, form. So we're going after that. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm close to, to applying. And then it's just the slow process right. of getting federal licenses. So in the analytics side, uh, when you look at the literature, there's there's a host of methods and, and they all somehow go like, yeah, use your standard C18 column, use your standard uh, aqueous phase with, uh, with like 0.1% forma, uh, formic acid uh, and use ethanol or meth- methanol. Methanol is the other mobile phase and you're good. And we're like thinking, so C18 column is good to keep behind aliphatic compounds. So the polar ones wash out really quickly. Right. And all the methods start, because we're on a C18 column, they start with aqueous phase as the majority first, and then you slowly bring in your organic phase. Psilocybin is a Twitter ion of a phosphorus group and an amine. Yeah. This thing is super polar and really water soluble. <laughs> so when you do that method, you basically flush out the psilocybin with your solvent peak. Right, yeah. Your injection solvent peak. <laughs> so like, hmm, that's a bit problematic. <laughs> and you run into a different problem. When you use a 0.1% formic acid, you have a little bit of acid in there. Yeah. But you have a Zwitter ion. So you have, so the, the psilocybin is always depicted neutral, but actually you have the proton from your amine going over to the, pho- no, wait, from the, sorry, from the phosphorus, the OH group, loses a, loses a proton. That goes to your amine. So you now have a n- negative phosphorus group, a positive amine. So two ions, Zwitter ion. Yeah. Uh, but now you have another proton floating around from the formic acid. So now you can have 
fully neutral, you can now come up with fully neutral uh, psilocybin. You can have uh, zutaion psilocybin. You can have positively charged uh, psilocybin when when the acid uh, neutralizes the phosphorus group, but not the amine. So now you you're coming up with like a lot of different possible ion states of phosphorus uh, of of psilocybin. Yes, and all of them are present when you're using one point one percent formic acid, uh, your standard method. And uh, it's by, actually it's a camelback. It looks like a camelback that peak. It's it's yeah. like super broad, impossible to integrate. So initially when we saw this, like. Did they give us like impure material? Are we looking at two compounds? Yeah. We took NMR pure. Um, we even put it on the high res MS on the on the university, but they're using the standard 0.1% formic acid method. And camelback, but mass is perfect. So that's the point. You can't actually with uh, psychedelic compounds, you can't work with the university uh, QTOF because they will use their normal method. So we, we then found some literature that used uh, a buffer, yeah. ammonium formate. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking about, yeah. Uh, so ammonium formate works. Problem is, if you're too acidic, you're actually dephosphorylating psilocybin to psilocin. Mm -hmm. And if you're not enough of ammonium formate in there, you're seeing uh, your, your, your camel back. So you have to really nail that concentration. Um, and so that's why it's one of the reasons we need our own QTOF because we can't rely on the university instrument that much anymore. Um, we also, we then did stability testing. So if you put your material in acidic conditions or in buffered acidic conditions, like how long does your psilocybin actually survives it? Right. Not long. So, um, this is not something where you can do sample preparation and then just put it on the queue for the next day that <laughs> you have to do this fresh. And, and then for one client, we were working on the question, so how, how do we now bring a psilocybin quantification method into the production floor for them uh, that they can test on their mushroom cultivation? Mm -hmm. uh, using the literature methods of like 150 millimeter columns, 40 mi minute run times, it's not, right. not, yeah, not feasible. So we developed, and, and you want a C18, even if it's not the right column, but the C18 is the cheap and like robust column. If you use a illic column, uh, they just don't live long enough, right? They get used up and, and they're not, not the right thing. So we actually did a method, we came up with a method that is on a 50 millimeter C18 column. And the runtime is three and a half minute with like total oh, wow. turnaround. Nice. Uh, for nice. psilocybin wow. and psilocin quantification. That's awesome. So now we have a very robust method that, that we can position at the cannabis produce, uh, or not, not, not cannabis, psilocybin production <laughs> side. Yeah, I'm sure a lot of them will be flipping eventually. <laughs> uh, maybe. Um, you see a lot of people that have started in cannabis and now try to do the same thing in, in psilocybin, but I try, uh, well, I hope that psilocybin starts with a bit more science-minded than, than yeah, Wild yeah, West-minded. So. And I think that this uh, government regulations will support that because there is this slow move to a form of legalization or a legal framework, but it's always around the medical use and, and yeah. the, 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 the pharmaceutical approach to it. 
not not cannabis medical like do whatever you want right um but by how do we ensure we produce the right thing that is controlled and over uh, and there's oversight so that uh it can then get to the doctors who then administer to it to the patients under their guidance and i think that doesn't really give it a billion dollar uh right. industry potential but it also forces the industry to be slow enough to think about what they're doing and so yeah, hopefully we can be part of that i hope so and and um related to that and i know we're getting close on time we'll start wrapping up soon but uh, something that's on my mind, given the work that you did with cannabis and, and now working with psilocybin, are you also um, trying to understand some of these, um, I won't say totally unknown, but not well characterized chemical constituents of psilocybin mushrooms beyond uh, psilocybin and psilocin? Because I know that's starting sure. to become kind of a, a big discussion. Sure. Um, so this the whole talk about analytical method of psilocybin as a preamble that yes uh but we can't we can't take a mushroom extract uh sample prep it and then inject it into a qtov at the university because their standard metabolomic method will just give camel peaks won't yeah. help so yes we are we are looking for other compounds and even if you look at the the list of known tryptamines in psilocybin mushrooms you already know that one is missing. Um, so psilocybin is the phosphorylated tryptamine compound, mm -hmm. and psilocin lost the 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 uh, phosphorus group. Right. And psilocybin has two methyls on the nitrogen. Yep. Right. So there is there is the there are the compounds that have no methyl, one methyl, two methyl, and then three methyl. On the, on, the, on the nitrogen. And then you have it with or without phosphorus. So yeah. you either have, so the nitrogen side and the, the OH uh, side are the two sides that are decorated different. And there's, there's um, so therefore there are possible eight compounds. Yeah. So the, the four different possibilities of decoration on the nitrogen, and then two each because phosphorus, no phosphorus. Yeah. And one of those compounds is not described in the literature. Interesting. So it's like logic just tells you that that compound must exist. Right. Like, yeah. I found a new tryptamine compound by just looking at the literature. Um, <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> now, we, now we want to actually prove it out on the, on the mass spec and then eventually on the NMR. But like we're looking, I'm, I'm just writing my research proposal uh, for Health Canada to get my research license. And I'm like, uh, yeah, that one. <laughs> like, look right. at it. This Obvious. one yeah. must exist. Let me find it. Give me a license. <laughs> and that's, that's been the case with cannabis, too. Uh, you know, like back in, um, particularly in the 50s and 60s. So like NMR started to come around in the late 50s and really started to be applied in the 60s. And you saw these um, like theoretical chemistry papers coming out that are saying like, and they didn't even have names for these compounds, but they're like, of course, these you know, look at the carbon tails. There's obviously going to be things in there that are shorter and longer than THC and CBD and, and looking at all these variations. And then, of course, the more you look and, and explore, they might be extremely minor concentrations, but almost assuredly 
it happens just because thinking about the biosynthetic pathways, they're not perfect. You know, the plants don't make just like one specific compound. There's all these dynamics going on. And so um, you can predict, and then that gives you good, uh, you know, incentive to, to go look. And it may take a while, but almost assuredly you end up finding it. And that the biggest example, I guess, was like THCP and CBDP when they finally discovered that in the plant, not just like synthesizing it and assuming it was there. Um, and so, yeah, that's exciting. And that's really cool that I, I didn't even realize that it's been a while. It's been a, quite a while since I've, I've looked at a lot of the chemistry publications on um, like psilocybin mushrooms and that sort of thing. But that's, that's fascinating that there's that just big glaring hole there just waiting for someone to dive into. Yeah, it's, it's a little bit like the early cannabis side, as you said, right? Uh, they identified what CBN first and CBD, THC, and it took longer until they actually got the acid forms because right, their right. sample preparation destroyed the yep. naturally occurring compounds. And I assume something like this is also the case for uh, for the mushroom side, right? I described yeah. describe the issue with stability um, in sample preparation, but even on the acidic mobile phase of a column method yeah, yeah, that you yep. get dephosphorylation on the column. So if you're not careful, yeah, you only see the dephosphorylated version and think that's it. But there is another compound present initially. And so the, it will allow us a lot of interesting work. And, and you mentioned THCP. So with increasing side chain, you actually get stronger binding and you got a stronger psychoactive effect. So um, size does matter. Uh, right. But it's yeah. also like the maybe the 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 biosynthetic way of the methyl ethyl isopropyl approach to medchem, mm -hmm. like let's just <laughs> yeah. try all those. Exactly. And, yeah. And and we are we are playing with that too, right? I mentioned early on that we are we are looking at chemical problems from all angles uh, in the department. So computational chemistry is uh, is used in our our work color identification, uh, compound identification. We looked at, we looked at um, decarboxylation reaction. So uh, that's a publication that's actually already out. So we were wondering, why does THC acid decarboxylates faster than CBD acid? Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, and that is a, that's a question you can't really answer experimentally. Uh, we just looked at it then uh, mm -hmm. uh, computationally. We got an answer. We then run experiments to show that there is a rate difference uh, and that it matches the calculations we did. So um, quick, uh, it's a steric effect. So THC is a flat mm. three-ring structure. CBD mm. is, a, is a twisted yeah. or three-dimensional two-ring structure. And there's actually the, 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 ice, uh, the, the limonene moiety that is yeah. perpendicular to the aromatic yeah. ring that... Uh, um, constitutes a steric hindrance for the incoming proton that is needed uh, for, the, uh, uh, for the acid group to leave. So you need the gotcha. intermolecular ah, donation of a proton. And if there's steric hindrance by the, by the limonene moiety, then it can't, can't come. Well, within like small uh, KCAL right. differences uh, or kilojoule differences. Uh, and that is a f enough to affect the rate determining. So the rate determining step is that protonation, and that it has uh, exhibits steric hindrance because of of the three dimensionality of CBD acid. So we we looked at that on computer. So we then also looked at uh, because my CTO is a computational chemist, medchem mm -hmm. background. Um, 
we did docking studies of terpenes on receptors. Um, nice. So yeah, would, yeah. would different terpenes affect, like everyone talks about the synergistic effect and we're like, right, okay, right. so can we make a computational argument that maybe s supports this, this uh, observational study uh, and yeah, we can we can find that terpenes dock to the uh, to receptors and might give different effects depending on which terpenes are present or not. We then uh, we just looked at and uh, we just did this in the last week was uh, we looked at do the different THC isomers so delta eight, delta nine, uh, and so on have a different docking strength or docking yeah. numbers to the uh, CB one receptor. Because everyone reports that THC delta eight is less intoxicating uh, than THC delta nine, and it's like, so can we can we see that in the data? Mm -hmm. um, so I hope that in the in the coming weeks we we get to talk about this and, and put some post out. Yeah, that's um, yeah, really good work and questions that are really on a lot of people's minds. I mean, the CBD thing, you you package that together so concisely because that's something I've I've not been able to give people a solid scientific answer to that. It's something I've ex people have reported to me and I've experienced it myself. I used to work um, for a brief time uh, helping a, a hemp company build out their research and development lab, and so they were doing CO two extraction and do it working on decarboxylating and everything. And that was something they were running into. And I always wondered, you know, what uh, was causing that, but you, you packaged that together um, really, really nicely. So that's super exciting. And I know we only got a few more minutes here, but there's one question I wanted to make sure to come back around to ask you, because I know when the topic came up, someone out there listening wants me to ask you this, which is related to the color issue. Um, what you were describing around the investigations into the purple color of CBD, um, and I know we've got to be really quick about this, but what are your thoughts around the colored uh, crystalline cannabinoids that have been hitting the market? There's like blue and pink, different, uh, uh, you know, THCA crystalline structures that are out there. Uh, what's your take on that? Sure. Actually, I got the question by by someone who wrote an article about this uh, too. So, um, so my answers for that is that color in crystals come can come from multiple forms, right? The 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 parent molecule that forms the crystal is colored, but THC is not blue. So, or THC acid is not blue. Right. So, no, it's not from the parent compound. Then it could be. Uh, either impurities or crystal structure. So sometimes, sometimes crystal structure can actually lead to a diffraction of light and therefore the appearance of color. Um, the crystal structure explanation doesn't really hold up for the THC acid crystals. I mean, most of the industry still thinks that if you put it under pressure, you get better crystals, but pressure has no effect on crystallization whatsoever <laughs> um, an, an academic friend at the university his, his, he's, he's an expert on crystallization he uses crystallization to separate enantiomers mm -hmm. I yeah. mean that's like the highest level of crystallization work you can yeah. do so I talked to him about this issue so yeah. uh, this is not me thinking that a ball job pressure has no effect it really has no effect so, okay, so it's not the crystal structure that gives the color. It's not the parent molecule, so it must be an impurity. Okay, so impurity 
can then question is how much is needed to produce the color. Uh, I said the right. purple color in our case was like parts per million, parts per billion. So it could be a very minute quantity. And then you can think, oh, then the impurity doesn't really matter because it's so little. Um, so therefore, sure. it's not a, not a health risk. But I want to know what it is. Right. Yeah. Because, because a very, very, not saying that that is the color, but I'm just as an example, a very, very little of um, uh, methylmercury is not a good thing. So, and that's not the color. I'm just... For the audience, right. give an example right. where a small quantity of a compound is very, very toxic. Uh, so we don't know what it is. It, it should be an impurity. So is that impurity? Impurity is not per se bad. It's just not right. THC acid. Exactly. Um, yeah. Is that impurity? So my first thought was colors, particular strong colors, come from metal compounds. So mm, is yeah. it a metal impurity? Uh, or is it an organic compound impurity? Um, both are possible. Mm -hmm. uh, what anthocyanins have colors, right? right. That's the mm -hmm. that's the the red in in red cabbage, and actually the the red or the purple in in the cannabis flower. Um, the purple Kush is anthocyanins. Yeah. Um, I always wanted to co-extract cannabis and red cabbage, and then make make purple extract that way but that that's a different story so um and i don't know um never has anyone given me um their colored crystals to look at what's in there i i would be i would be tempted and uh interested to figure that out uh, could it be the the compound that we identified um in in the cbd products to be part of the crystal in, in CBD acid, maybe. Um, but uh, I right now, I don't have a good answer. What it is, I'm there's... just like, that's my explanation of where the color would come from. Yeah, and I know there's some speculation that it might also be some uh, uh, like terpenoid or something that can maintain a crystalline structure at room temperature that might imbue some color. I've heard that theory floating around too. Um, I've never been able to play with it in the lab, so I, I don't know either. Um, but I was, I was interested on your, your take on that because they're getting more and more popular, and certainly that's something I'm trying to wrap my head around because I get questions about it. And I, I just find it funny that the new hot thing is now blue crystals, especially after Breaking Bad. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, right? It's like, <laughs> like this yeah. is, this is awesome, <laughs> but this is also so wrong. That now the new hot thing of uh, of crystals, uh, THCA crystals, is like blue. I was like, <laughs> I'm wondering if Breaking Bad would uh, pa uh, would uh, sue for patent infringement, right? Yeah. yeah, and and like you're trying to you're trying to bring an industry into legality and into general acceptance, mm -hmm. and yeah. then you obviously rip off. Uh, a drug story from television. I'm like, it's maybe well, not the best PR move. I know. And it, what worries me about it is it creates an opportunity for, because even if, if the blue THC crystalline products are totally safe, that's awesome and great. But it creates a situation where you now have producers that may feel motivated to like, oh, let's figure out how we can make our THC crystals appear blue. Oh, we don't know how to do it, so let's just add something else, or, you know, whatever. 
Um, and then you start getting to other safety issues um, that yeah. way. So I, I get nervous when there's like hype around a product like that that's not well understood because you're going to get imitators. And even if the original thing is safe, the imitators may not be, and we just don't know much about it. So yeah, and then comes the question about is it safe to ingest versus inhale? So the grass aspect, right, right. Uh, which was uh, quite important for the vitamin E acetate storyline. Yep, yep. um, so, but I think to, to sum it up, uh, I think an important takeaway for the audience on this part of the discussion is it is important for us to say, I don't know. Uh, this is something you don't hear much in the cannabis industry that someone would yeah. say, I don't know. And I've, I've, look, I start off with, I don't know cannabis. Like I had no right. idea what it is. So I started off from, I don't know. And I'm always happy to admit that I don't know something. And then I will try to figure out how it can answer the question. But that's the fun thing about science. You don't know the answer. You try to figure it out. And it can be still proven wrong, right? I came up with an answer and I might still be wrong and I right, right. don't know all of it. So sometimes we need to be a bit more humble and not say that we know everything. You, you, just, had, uh, uh, you just had a very uh, long and spirited discussion about the fact that cannabis can be addictive or can have negative effects. Uh, and... And so we need to be open to to those possibilities that don't fit our storyline. Yeah. Um, and we need to keep our eyes open for contrary results, but also understand that not all the answers are out there. Yeah. And uh, we need research. And you always hear the politicians, oh, no, more research needs to be done. Yeah, no, more research needs to be done, uh, but let us do it. Yeah, a totally different story. But therefore, the cannabis industry should not push back and said, no, we don't need more research. We know it all. It should be, no, we right. don't know it. Let's do it further. Let's study it further. Um, and and that's where, where hopefully I come in and my team comes yeah. in uh, and we can help. Absolutely. I That's... A great way to to wrap this discussion up and and put a big bow on it, and that's I couldn't agree more. And and this process of connecting people with uh, scientists and trying to understand the data and what we know and don't know, you know, I, I see that as my role, trying to facilitate these uh, conversations to try to get people to think critically and not um, get caught up in our own biases and you know all of these different things. Um, and hopefully that paves the way to a more mature and overall more fruitful and interesting future for the industry um, as a whole. So, um, yeah, Ed, this has been great. Um, I know you need to go, but um, keep up uh, as some of these uh, uh, publications and things that you've talked about. Please send them my way and I will share them, tack them on to the episode, um, you know, whatever we can do. And um, yeah, I look forward to seeing what else uh, you and your team uh, put together, especially as sure. you're traveling into this world of, of psychedelic research and everything. It's going to be super, super fascinating. So um, yeah, thanks so much, Dr. Rogan, for being willing to come on the podcast and share your story and some of your takeaways. And hopefully we'll get to connect again. And I'm sure we'll have a lot more uh, to dive into. We're just scratching the surface on a lot of this stuff. Sure, happy to. Um 
currently I'm working on two position papers in cannabis testing for the cannabis testing industry. Um, hopefully they might be impactful. Uh, one is actually inspired by the current COVID situation. Um, nice. So actually COVID testing inspired me to rethink some of the cannabis testing. So, um, Particularly around DNA testing? No, no, not about? at all. Batch testing. Oh, Batch, Batch testing, testing. Yes, yes. Batch yes. testing. Um, and I think there is something you can cross-pollinate from other other fields. Anyway, so it was it was fun speaking to you. Um, I hope uh, that I get the audience interested in looking at our research uh, and follow along further. Uh, and uh, hopefully I produce enough uh, new work that I have to come back and uh, present that too. Absolutely, yeah. All right. Well, Dr. Rogan, thanks so much. It's been a great pleasure, as I knew it would be. And everyone listening, uh, thanks so much for listening through the whole conversation. And um, I'll make sure to post uh, links and things in the uh, um, in the description of the episode so people can um, connect. I know there's a lot of changes going on with the company and everything. I wasn't sure what links to um, share going forward now that the company's changed. But uh, let me know about all of that, any marketing stuff, and I'll uh, tack it on into the um, into the notes. But uh, with that, everyone, thanks so much for listening, and I'll uh, catch you again soon. Stay curious and take it easy. Thank you. Bye bye. If you want to learn more about cannabis, check out the Curious About Cannabis book on Amazon.com and other major online book retailers. 